on those headphones. It's time for Naughty Talk with Sunny Lee Maine. Welcome to Naughty Talk with Sunny Lee Maine, the podcast that explores all things kinky in a sexy and inclusive way. This show is intended for mature audiences aged 18 and up, and some listeners may find it disturbing. We believe in risk-aware consensual kink here on the show, so if you do try things mentioned on the show at home, know that neither the show nor the cast are responsible for any accidents, injuries, legal or property damages that may occur while getting your kink on. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 2 of Naughty Talk. I'm Sunny, she, her, and I am here with our amazing guest, Void, he, they, it. How are you today? I'm good, thank you. I'm really excited to have you on the show. I am excited to be here. Yay! (laughs) So Void is a kink educator who often teaches on harm reduction in kink and also being a sex worker themselves teaches on the subject of sex work. So I'm super excited that he has agreed to talk to us a little bit about his work today and sex work in general, but... Before we kind of dive into the main topic, I usually like to let people sort of introduce themselves, maybe a little bit about your roles and identities within the kink community, um, other kink and trust, that kind of thing. Okay. I am Void. I am a sex worker who focuses more on education nowadays, but I'm also like queer, polyamorous, uh, a spectrum. And I am also a disabled person, so I focus on accessibility in kink spaces as well. Super important. I'm actually going to be recording an episode for this season specifically focusing on accessibility. It's a, a really important subject. Yeah. And like, because I've dealt with accessibility issues, it's made it, I've made it a point to like teach on it. So, We're going to talk a little bit about your work today, and I'd just like to know a little bit about how you sort of found a path to it, what sort of things do you tend to specialize in, just tell us a little bit about it. I'm going to start with a content warning that, like, it talks about, like, transphobia, queerphobia for the how I got involved. Okay. I got involved with it as, like, a survival mechanism because my parents... They didn't kick me out, per se, but they gave me the stop being queer or don't come back. And I chose the don't come back. And, like, I started out doing full service sex work. And then, but yeah, I focus more on photo sets and education. And I'm hoping to, like, move eventually to just education. Like, I love this job. It's just, it's emotionally tiring. And I feel like I can be doing more good, like, in other areas. Absolutely. And, you know, education is super important. So I'm glad that you're out there doing it. That's part of why we have the show. You mentioned how much you do love your work. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what you love most about it? What aspects you find sort of the most empowering? I find the harm reduction work most empowering because... Let's face it, sex ed has failed us all. Yes. (laughs) And because of that, I feel like helping people be safe and if they're doing like higher risk kink activities, be safe doing those as well. I don't know if I have ever told this story on the show before, but the sex ed that I had at my high school was terrible. (laughs) It was so bad. And... So, like, the first thing they do is, you know, they pass around the binder with the pictures of all the STIs to try to terrify you instead of, like, talking about it like this is a thing that can happen. But, you know, there are preventative steps and, you know, ways to live and, you know, go on if something like this happens and it's more common than you would think. No. So, we had, like, the horror lecture about, like, basically how you'll die if you have (laughs) sex. Um So basically the sex ed class for mean girls. Yes. (laughs) If you have sex, you will die. Um, I'm exaggerating a tiny little bit there. But, you know, it was meant to to sort of um, scare us. And then we all had to take home 
you know, those like robot, creepy robot dolls that scream at random intervals. Yeah. (laughs) So there was that element of it. But the very best part was the instructor put these signs along the walls in the classroom listing different types of sex acts. And then, you know, we were, I don't know, it was freshman year. So we would have been like, what, like 15 had us all stand under the sign (laughs) where we thought it was like appropriate or like under the sign with the sex acts that we were individually comfortable (laughs) with. And, you know, it's like, one, it's like a privacy violation. Two, it's shamey. Three, there is no order in which like some acts are like more or less sex than others, in my opinion. And I just remember there was this giant debate because they had listed anal sex before um, like penetrative vaginal sex. And the 15 year olds in the class generally felt that like anal sex sounded pretty kinky. So they thought it should be moved to the end. (laughs) It was just it was the most ridiculous thing. Yeah. Hopefully things have evolved a little bit since then. I think probably not, though. They haven't. So that's my horror story, but (laughs) kind of getting back on topic. Um, Yes, sex education is so incredibly important, and I'm not surprised that's one of your favorite parts. What else do you enjoy about the work you do and, and find empowering? I get to work with, like, people and couples. It's really fun to work with couples because I do tasters for, like, folks looking to get into kink and... It will be like, what thing do you want to, like, explore? And, like, I'll help them explore it in, like, a safe way. So you're doing a little bit of, like, intimacy coaching for couples and such. Yes. And is it sort of what you imagined? Or do you feel like it's wildly different than what you pictured in your brain when you thought about sex work before ever having done it? So what kind of met your expectations and what was, you know, wildly different than anything you'd imagined? People actually tended to be a lot more respectful of me than I thought they would be, which is like kind of really great. Yay, humanity. (laughs) Yay, humanity. And like there was the other side of it of people being like, ha, you are object. And I'm like... No, I'm not. At least at least not with you. Do you think that if given the choice again, you would take a similar path or I didn't really have a choice in like the path I took. It was more of a this will get food in your stomach and get you shelter in the cold Boston winter. So it was more of a survival thing than like me having a choice. And then I stuck with it because I was like, I could do a lot of good with this. And I think I would have stuck with it again. So basically knowing what you know now, this is something you would have considered doing if choice had been on the table. Yes. What about for clients? What are some of the main benefits? A lot of it is people want an experienced person to be able to like help them with like how to do things safely so clients will just be like yes here is currency or here is like me paying your rent for you for the month in exchange for like you do x number of sessions with us it really doesn't sound that different than, you know, what we're doing in kink education classes in a group setting except sort of privatized it's it's the fact that it's privatized that makes it to the government be sex work and makes me have to like be constrained by a lot of different laws. Got it. And you know, just for folks who are listening, we keep saying the term sex work, but that could mean so many different things. Do you feel like you could sort of just give a little bit of uh, an umbrella for the different types of things that maybe people don't even consider that might fall under that? Uh, A big one that people don't realize falls under it is doing stuff like posting like risque pictures to OnlyFans. That's definitely a type of sex work. So is 
burlesque. So is really anything that's meant to arouse. And I would argue that even sex education would fall under sex work. Right. It's such a a broad umbrella, you know, erotic dancing, for example. And, you know, I do a lot of kink education. A lot of people would consider the classes, you know, that we're even doing at like conventions, that sort of thing. If you get paid for it, some people would consider that to be under the umbrella. And even in the process of doing something like writing erotic novels, it's interesting that if you decide to be upfront with sort of a consent process about what's contained in your book, it doesn't even have to contain any pictures or anything like that. All of the advertising restrictions and such on popular social media sites, that kind of thing, they end up applying because they are lumping it in with sort of like a general sort of sex work policy. So really anything with adult content. And I find that it's really a barrier to education because when you can't advertise services or educational materials openly, it really tends to make people fi- you know, feel alone, to maybe seek that education through unsafe avenues. So you know, censorship isn't really, in my opinion, doing anybody any good. And even in like sex positive spaces, they still have lots of rules that will make being like, hey, I do this thing for money, you should check it out, be like, more than the site wants to deal with. Like, on one of my old accounts, I took a ban from a very popular site. Because they're like, the type of sex work you're doing is obviously not legal in my, in your state. It was. So therefore, we're gonna ban you. Like, my theory is it was the credit card companies being like, we don't like this person. But I digress. And I mean, obviously, little disclaimer, we're not attorneys. So we're not (laughs) administering any legal advice whatsoever. However, do you find that there's like a, you know, with all of those things under that umbrella, that there's a clear place where most states in the United States draw the line? Like, is it about having, like, physical sexual contact with clients? Like, where do they draw the line? So it's really what I've found that applies to most states is as soon as you touch another person, it can fall under solicitation. What about if the clients are touching each other and you're present? That's a very tricky gray area that, like, really depends state from state and lawyer to lawyer. Got it. And again, we're not we are not dispensing any legal advice, so please do not. I am 100% not a lawyer. Yeah, please don't don't stake your personal safety on our our chit-chat here on Naughty Talk, but it is interesting, you know, where the line can be drawn to think about and also I mean it seems like money being exchanged is important, so something that might be you know considered like a legitimate educational thing legally, not to say that I I think other forms are not legitimate, but from a legal standpoint, something that could be considered legitimate. If no money is exchanged, the minute money changes hands, that's where things get dicey. Is that? Yeah, it's why I only take donations and will never take like direct payment from like a con if they offer to pay me to do a class that has like any sort of demo in it. Because that could be seen as, like, solicitation and gets into brothel laws. Got it. So, I mean, we're kind of drifting in this direction anyway, but we've talked a little bit about the legal aspect. And I feel like in mainstream media, coverage of sex work is often really dehumanizing or focuses on things like victimization or other toxic things or, you know, they're having stock photos of, like... I don't know, like legs and fishnets on the side of a car or something like that, that aren't really representative of a lot of sex work and just really objectifying. It's really done badly. So, you know, it's rare to see coverage focusing on sex work as real and legitimate work. And often the worst part is that sex workers' voices are not included. Do you want to just say something about why that's so harmful or any thoughts on, you know, what might make it better? I think that it would make it better if, like, 
they focused more on sex workers being people because like we are at the end of the day, just a person who works to make money to put food in our stomachs. And sex work is real work. Yeah. Like actually a really good representation of sex work that I've seen is Marshmallow from Bob's Burgers because they don't portray her as like some strange, mysterious, like, caricature. They portray her as just, like, a trans femme lady who is a good friend to the family and whatnot. And I think it only comes up that she does sex work in, like, two episodes, while the rest, it's just, oh, she's a friend of the family. Right. Just like any other profession, it's often you know, an afterthought and secondary to the other things that, you know, make a person who they are. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit? I know we, you know, we touched on like the legal stuff, but maybe some of the the risks that might be involved either in doing that kind of work or being a client and maybe what people can do to stay safer because we never safe safe. We always say, you know, risk aware consensual. So to stay safer, I really recommend just not getting into sex work to begin with. But if you have crossed that bridge, it's always work with a buddy and like have people who know where you are, know who you're with, know like what you're doing and know how to reach you and like know your full legal name and everything in case like God forbid something bad does happen that you'll be able to be found because most people in the sex work industry are in really marginalized groups. Back in 2015, I saw a study that said black trans women are the highest percent of people doing sex work for survival. And yeah, have people that know your legal information and how to get in contact with you. Honestly, some of that doesn't sound too different than what I recommend to folks who are considering doing like online or Tinder dating or something like that. You know, you might not give that person your real information before you meet them, but, you know, try, you know, to choose a safe space to meet to let somebody know where you're going. I feel like a lot of those same principles, it sounds like apply. Yes. So if you could sort of wave a magic wand and impart some knowledge, you know, directly into the brains of the general population. What are some of the things you just wish everybody knew about sex work? That it is a real and legitimate form of work. And like when sex workers aren't the punchline to a joke, because the media seems to see us as that. So it sounds like, you know, just listening to you talk about it, some of the benefits, you know, for people in general are some of the same things that are benefits for really any kind of sex education and ability to talk to somebody about your intimate fantasies and to have that be accepted and not shamed, an opportunity to learn about different types of kinky play or different types of play from someone who knows how to do them, you know, with relative safety and you know, also it can be beneficial for people who are maybe in a relationship and are interested in proving their intimacy and they want to take a little bit more of a hands-on approach than, you know, just talking about it in couples therapy. Yeah, that's what a lot of my customer base is. All right. So kind of circling back to sex workers are real people with real lives outside of their jobs. I would love if you would take us out with a story. And when we were kind of chatting before the show, you told a story that was really funny and I think our listeners would enjoy it. And I definitely think it fits into our sort of naughty talk rule number two shit happens theme where kink goes hilariously wrong. But yeah, I mean, rather than a story about the work, I think it would be really fun to kind of take it out with a a story about a silly experience with one of your more personal kink situations. Yes. So I traumatized a Domino's delivery man. I had help, (laughs) but I accidentally traumatized a Domino's delivery man. So my friend who I'm going to call bun for this, 
runs play parties specifically for queer folks. And I go to them. And, well, I tend to be the, the, the kink mom of the group where I'll, like, make sure people have water, condoms, clothes. You know, you always have to play with someone the game of, hey, do you know where my underpants went? I'm giggling because I already know where this goes because I had a preview. <laughs> I'm just, like, giggling and trying to give you a chance to tell the full story. <laughs> so... It's late at night. It's like 2 a.m. I've gone and done the ask around of, hey, does anyone need anything? And people were like, hey, we're hungry. So I'm like, well, the only thing open that delivers because I'm not getting dressed. I feel like no one else is getting dressed. And the only place that delivers is Domino's at this hour. I can't tell you how many times I've eaten Domino's pizza in a situation where it has been late at night and I've been up to naughties. So I put in the order and I put on the on the delivery instructions. Large dog in backyard, not friendly, do not approach. Because, <laughs> you know, my friend has a secluded enough yard that with reasonable expectation of privacy... So we can actually, like, play outside in the nice air and stuff. Mm -hmm. And, like, we've gotten to the part of the night where the person who's essentially working as a door dragon has been given the okay to go do their thing because no one else is coming. And, like, we just mark the outside back porch as smoking only. So my friends go out for a smoke. I join them to like socialize and be a person surprisingly this must have been pre-pandemic because i'm still like waiting for being able to socialize and being a person again and i believe it was or like right as things were starting but there were like no lockdowns in place Mm -hmm. but my friend my friend bun has my friend who i'm gonna call mer in on a leash and collar outside Murr is wearing only a sheet and this is going to be important later (laughs) like we're shooting the shit we're having a good time and then we just hear um excuse me so you know we all turn to the voice because we're like oh hey probably just a party person who wants to be let back in because they got something from their car or something and we look and see it's a domino's delivery driver with like three pizzas and looking back on us he sees me wearing only a hoodie, like <laughs> only a hoodie. My friend Bun is the most dressed out of all of us in like a t-shirt and skirt, except in one hand she has a smoke, in the other hand she has a leash that leads to a collar around Mer's neck. Mer is only <laughs> wearing a fitted sheet, and we just look at each other, look at the Domino's guy, and are like, can we help you? And he just leaves the bo- the pizza and just walks away. And it's like, I just imagine him being like the guy from Fear and Loathing who like sees the whole bathroom scene and then just walks right out. <laughs> he just noped out. He was like, they do not pay me enough <laughs> to process this. I'm just going to put the pizza down and run. We electronically tipped him like 30 bucks. Hey, you know what? You put a big warning right in the delivery notes. <laughs> there was, in fact, it sounds like a, at least a, a pup, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Very funny. So sex workers are real people. They have real lives. Some of them kinky, some of them not. And I think it's just important to kind of keep the focus on all people are more than what they do for work. But you know, what they do for work is valid. Yeah. And like all people are deserving of like food, shelter, housing, and how you get it shouldn't be like this big, horrible, like scary thing that can like impede your ability to get those things. Absolutely. Well, thank you for coming on the show and talking to us about some of the stuff. I think that it's definitely going to be educational for our listeners. And I know you have lots of other things in terms of experience. So maybe we'll have you on the show again in the future. 
Yeah. Daddy, it's time for VD Mac. All right, next up we have Mac, he, him, and we're going to be talking about contracts today, a really exciting topic. How are you today? I am fantastic, Sunny. How are you? Well, thanks, and we're going to dive right in. So BDSM contracts use legal style language to negotiate BDSM arrangements or dynamics. But it's important to understand that they aren't going to be legally binding. This is not a document that's going to stand up in a court of law. They can, however, be used to help do self-exploration, to negotiate with a partner. And if there's a built-in expiration or review date, it's a way to sort of schedule time to sit down with a partner and reassess if a situation is working for everyone. So we both have at times in our lives used contracts and for different reasons. And so before we get into kind of the nitty gritty about the type of things that someone might find in a contract, I just want to ask, you know, in what context did you use one and did you find it was useful? Uh, so let me address the second part first, because I think that's the easiest one. Yes, it was incredibly useful. Um, it allowed me to refer back to it to make sure that I understood all of our pre-negotiated consents and limits. So it was very useful. Um, for me personally, um, the longest time that I used a contract uh, was... Uh, Fairly recently, um, it was a submissive who, for all intents and purposes, had lost her dom for a little bit of time. And basically, all I was doing was stepping in and helping keep her on task on certain things. So there, there was no there was no play involved. It was all. Um, kind of strictly the keeping her on task and being un, being able to understand how I could discipline her if I needed to, how I could reward her if I needed to, and, and so on and so forth. Got it. So you were kind of filling in on a time-limited basis for this person's permanent dom. Yep. I was a temp dom. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but that's a really great use of a contract because, you know, you think about this in the context sometimes like of a training relationship or where you are going to spend a period of time with a person and you want to be in dynamic during that time period for whatever reason. In this case, you know, this was somebody that you knew and were actually close with and knew the dom in question. And so we're kind of asked to take the reins for a set space of time, right? Yeah. I mean, I knew both of them uh, very well and it, it's not something certainly I would do for just anyone, but for the two of them, you know, I, I felt that our friendship was in a place where I could do that. Got it. So, you know, that's just one example of a time that you might use something like this. You could also totally use a contract when you are negotiating a new relationship that you're hoping is going to be a long-term or potentially permanent relationship. Or if you've had a relationship for a very long time, but you are entering into a BDSM dynamic for the first time. So maybe like your relationship has been vanilla and you know, for the first time you're going to be exploring some kink or in a situation where you're new to kink and you want to use a contract to kind of help you think through all of the different areas of your life where power exchange could be applied and then decide where you want it to be applied. So, so many different applications for this, but really they are tools for communication and sort of tools for, you know, discussion at their, um, at their root. So it was kind of funny because we were talking about 
how we've both used contracts in the past. And prior to ever meeting each other, we actually both used the same kind of template for a contract. So I think it's worth mentioning that before we even knew each other separately on our own, we both used a template from bdsmcontract.org. This is not a a sponsored um, episode or, or plug or anything, but they have contracts for different types of relationships available on their website where you can purchase the template. But I also think that at, at least when I used it, I believe they had a free template that would at least give you some ideas for areas of negotiation. And so I thought that we might actually kind of take a look at one of those because they are a decent sample. That sounds great. All right. So the first part is just, you know, who are the parties in the relationship? What are their roles? What are their kink roles? Like who's the dominant? Are they a master or mistress? Are they a submissive or a slave? Those types of things. And the second part is a little bit more important. It's duration. So how long is the arrangement going to last? And as I mentioned, this doesn't mean that the relationship ends when the contract ends. It could just be, you know, once a year or every six months, I like to do, you know, like three to six months when I use a contract, but how often are we going to evaluate, have a sit down conversation about, is this working for us? And it can kind of be, if you want a living document where you review it at certain intervals and then make changes. And then you get into goals and purpose of the contract. You know, what are you trying to achieve here? And I like this contract sort of template because it it does give, you know, it talks about the purpose and then it talks about responsibilities and behavior and it breaks it down, um, sort of listing those things for both the dominant and the submissive parties, because there are expectations for both. It goes through things like communication. How are we allowed to contact each other? How often can we contact each other? You know, are we going to use a journal? Are we going to do email? Can we use the phone or text messages? Can that be used at any time or, you know, just under certain circumstances? So lots of different things on here, but I just want to dive in a little more detail into some of these things. And um, so the first one I want to take a closer look at is sort of scope of the arrangement. So this is looking at areas of the life that could be affected by power exchange and which of those areas is the dominant going to have some control in. Do you want to comment on what some of those different areas are? Sure. I mean, I think the one that most people kind of jump to is, uh, you know, the, the total power exchange. So basically the DOM makes all the decisions for the submissive. So what to wear, what to eat, what to spend money on, you know, so on and so forth. But really the options can be, can be infinite. Uh, So for example, and, and Sunny, I'll let you talk about your experience, but you know, in the last time I used a contract, I had a specific list of tasks that I needed to oversee uh, to keep the submissive, um, on target. And that was just the, the total limit of my scope. So I had no control over what she ate, what she, um, drank, what she, how, you know, how she dressed, so on and so forth. So I had a very finite scope of my responsibilities. So it really can, can be anything, (laughs) Right. It can be anything, but I mean, there are some, some things that are common. So for example, you need to be thinking about all the different areas of your life. Is the dominant going to have control over your career and what you do at work? Some of these things are sort of sacred cows. Are they going to have any control over how you interact with your vanilla friends and family? Are they going to have control over, um, you know, like you said, basic daily acts of living, so, or activities of daily living. So things like toileting, eating, exercise, dress, hygiene, um, aesthetic things, you know, personal styling, waxing, all of that stuff kind of under activities of daily living, you know, 
when do they have control? So you could negotiate, for example, that when we are together, we have a total power exchange. And when we are apart, these are the things that I'll text and ask for permission for before doing. Or you could do something that's really sort of loose, like the submissive will go about, you know, these activities of daily living on their own, unless the dominant steps in and specifies. So like the submissive is going to get up and dress themselves on their own every single day, unless the dominant says, I want you to wear this outfit today, or I want you to wear this outfit when we go on our date tomorrow night. And so instead of micromanaging every little thing, which as a top can be exhausting, you might just make the agreement that within these areas that we've agreed upon, I'm going to do my own thing, but I know that if my dominant steps in and gives me a directive, that's always going to override the personal choice. You know, if they step in, if they choose to assert their dominance, then I'm going to do these things. So it can be something that's time limited. It can be something that goes across every single aspect of your life or only a few. Personally, I would never want to control a submissive's relationship with their biological family or their job. You know, if they are doing a job and working for a living, I'm never going to want to interfere with that and potentially, you know, be the reason that they lose their job or source of income or whatever. Like, that's not something that I ever want to have a hand in. And I would never personally as a dominant want to say, your mom or dad has texted you, but this is our time. And so no, you can't like check in and see if it's an emergency. You know, those are not things that I would ever personally want to interfere in. And on the other side, I'm I'm rarely on the other side of a power exchange, but I have been at other times in my life. And those are not things that I would ever want to give up control of. So anyway, there are many things that you could discuss here. Those are just a, a few things to consider. The other one that I want to talk about is veto power. That's something that can be in a contract. Do you want to say what that is? Yeah. So veto power, you know, it works both ways, really. Um, if the submissive makes a uh, suggestion that the dom doesn't like, the dom can veto it. And uh, in some cases, vice versa is also there. So if the dom says, uh, uh, as an example, I want you to wear this blue mini skirt, uh, and the submissive takes a look at the weather forecast and says, I'm going to freeze my ass off if I do that. So no, I'm not going to please, you know, select something else or something. Um, so that power generally is built into contracts as well, and it's specified. Right, how it's going to be applied. So something that's really common to say is that the submissive is going to follow the dominance command unless it's going to negatively impact health or safety. Like that could be a really general thing, or unless it's going to break the law or cause a major privacy violation. So like, for example, if the dominant says, I want you to do X, Y, Z. And when the submissive, you know, considers doing that thing, realizes that there's a safety issue, that might be a place where, you know, veto might come into play. Now, some people love things like humiliation. And so while some people might say, okay, if I really feel like this is an inappropriate thing to do in public, I want to, as the submissive, maintain veto power in those circumstances. And other people might really enjoy not having veto power when their dominance says, I want you to wear this like super revealing outfit when we go out to dinner tonight. So there is no right or wrong. It's just about what you negotiate. And so the other thing that veto sometimes is used for is when non-monogamy is involved and whether that's just for play or for relationships and you know, a question of whether a party in dynamic has veto power for can a person play with another person? Can a person start another relationship? And um, I'm not going to dig into the ethics of that, but that is a place that it's used. So for example, a submissive could choose to say, when we're at a play party, my dominant can negotiate for me 
who I'm going to play with that evening. They can choose to share me with a friend, do those types of things. And then what you would want to negotiate in this section of the contract is, can the submissive say no? Can they override it? Or, you know, if the the submissive says, I want to play with this other person, can the dominant say, no, you can't? And I, I just want to go ahead and put a little note on this part that, you know, regardless of what you negotiate, every single person always has agency and always should have the right to say no to any kind of sexual act at any time. You know, this might be something where a safe word comes into play. So like maybe it's really sexy to negotiate a dynamic where the dominant can share the submissive with someone else and the submissive doesn't have any veto power. So within the dynamic, you know, in a consensual, non-consenting way, they can't say no. But where if they use their safe word red, obviously, you know, that's off the table. So negotiating these kinds of things for what can happen during play doesn't mean that if something changes or if something isn't right, that you can't use your safe word. Um, and actually, exclusivity is also in here um, in this particular template. So an exclusivity for partners are are also listed in here. Things like, you know, this is going to be a monogamous relationship. Is it going to be an open relationship? Um, can threesomes happen? And when can those happen? And all of those things can be negotiated in the exclusivity section. There are also sections for safe words, for activities and limits. Um, do you want to just say something about limits that might go in here? Well, I, I, it's really um, whatever, you know, obviously whatever is negotiated for limits, but could be things like, um, for example, impact, you know, by hand. So spanking, for example, is okay, but um, crops and paddles are not, as an right. example. So hard and soft limits basically right. can be included in a contract. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so, I mean, there are so many categories in here. We're not going to talk about all of them. You can certainly download this. There are explanations um, or, you know, create your own or get one from somewhere else. But the the other thing that I want to mention that's in here is termination. I feel like that's such an important thing. And nobody ever wants to think about the end of a relationship or a dynamic if it doesn't work out. But this could be a really good thing that you might want to negotiate in advance if it's something that's brand new to you. Are you just going to simply say that any party can terminate the contract at any time? Generally, I feel like that's a pretty good rule of thumb because that's about consent. Like anybody should be able to consent at any time, whether or not they're in a relationship, whether or not they're in dynamic. And But where you might get a little bit more specific than that are things like, can you re-enter the arrangement? So like you might decide in advance that if for any reason we decide to terminate, that we're not going to get back together, we're going to go our separate ways. Or if you are cohabitating, like you might discuss like in the event that we were to separate, this is what would happen to the lease on our apartment, or this is how we're going to go about the separation and separating our financials, or this is how we're going to separate our property. Now, again, this is not a legally binding contract, so it's never going to substitute for something like a prenuptial agreement or or whatever, but it just might be a conversation. Like, if this doesn't work out, how can it not work out in a civil and organized way? So, uh, like, for example, um, the contract that I was in uh, recently uh, not only was the terminology in there that, you know, either party can terminate the arrangement at any time, but there was also a time limit on it. So the contract would terminate on its own in six months from the date that we signed it. So, you know, again, just as another example of some of the things that you can put in that, that termination clause. Right. And I mean, it could also say something like, and I think, you know, it's a little bit of a duplication. I think that when I use this template, I simplified it a little bit, you know, but when you're talking about duration or of the contract, or you're talking about termination, you can think about things like, this is something we might terminate in three months. Because if we continue the dynamic in still in three months, this new thing is going to happen. Like this is a contract for a period of consideration, or this is a contract for a training period. And in three months, this contract will terminate. And we'll both sit down and talk about like, is this relationship working 
for us? Do we want to have another training period or another extended period of consideration? Or do we want to take this relationship to this next level? Do we want to continue to have a contract? Do we want to have a new contract that sort of defines the terms of this next step we're taking? So termination, again, it doesn't always mean the end of a relationship, but it can. So these are things that you can negotiate in advance. All right. So I think let's close out the the contracts discussion with a little bit more um, of a story about personal experience. So Mac has kind of talked about a time that a contract was super useful and went really well. And I'm going to tell a little bit of a story on the flip side of that, because I think it's important. And in my case, I used a contract at one point in time to renegotiate the terms of a relationship where the dynamic and the relationship had not been working out. And, you know, the relationship had, you know, really started as one thing and become something else. And I did choose to separate from that relationship entirely, not just from the dynamic, but to completely end the relationship for a period of time. And at the time, you know, I really still cared about that person and that person expressed interest in sort of coming back into my life. And so I decided that I was interested in sort of trying again, pursuing the relationship, but that I really wanted to be clear, like from the get go in terms of our dynamic, because we'd had a 24 seven dynamic. I really wanted to renegotiate some of the terms. And I thought that a contract might be really useful for that negotiation. And it was, I think we had a really good conversation about all of these things. And we laid out all of these things and had the contract been adhered to, you know, I think it would have looked like the type of relationship that I really wanted to have at the time. But this is, you know, where the this is not a legally binding contract comes in. A BDSM contract is not relying on the law to back it up. The thing that makes a BDSM contract useful or a relationship contract of any kind really useful is that the the thing that's the power behind it, the thing that's backing it up, it's trust, it's mutual respect and commitment to upholding what's in the contract. So it's a piece of paper. Otherwise, it doesn't mean anything if both people aren't equally committed to sticking to the contract and, you know, to whatever it is you've agreed to. And, you know, in my case, I I learned a contract isn't going to fix broken trust. It's going to set limits and it's going to set boundaries, but at the end of the day, you have to both really sort of stick to it. And so, you know, if you're in a situation where there have been issues with boundary violations or consent violations or trust isn't there or mutual respect has been damaged, a contract is no way going to fix those things. So it's just a little kind of caveat, you know, that relationship ultimately did not work out. And, you know, I think I was leaning heavily on this idea of a contract as something that could prevent negative things from happening a second time. And they really just don't work that way. You know, you're not going to take someone to court and sue them if they don't hold up their end. And in the end, it wouldn't matter even if you could, because if it gets violated, both people are going to be probably feeling pretty crappy about it. So... A contract is really good for, can be an amazing tool for negotiating something new, for self-exploration, for facilitating communication within a trusting and a healthy relationship, but no amount of negotiating and writing is going to fix something that is ultimately broken or toxic. Do you have anything else you want to add kind of about contracts in general or when they might be useful or just any other little pearls of wisdom? (laughs) Well, I mean, I think that contracts in a, a lot of relationships can be useful, but again, as you said, it it depends on the individuals involved and whether they're going to be able to follow it or not. Um, like any other type, you know, really, a, a contract is a trust, 
and, you know, trusts can sometimes get violated in a relationship uh, and having a piece of paper to back that isn't, you know, it's, it's a paper tiger um, pun intended. Uh, it, there's really no bite to it other than, you know, justification perhaps for ending the relationship. Which ultimately you don't really need. <laughs> yeah. I mean, ultimately, you know, if something isn't right, if you're not happy in a relationship, you don't need any justification to separate yourself from that situation. You always, always, regardless, you could totally negotiate a complete power exchange, you know, MS type dynamic. And the reality is at any time, either party can always end that relationship if it becomes, you know, not what it's meant to be. If it's not safe, you know, you don't give up your power or your agency to leave a relationship, especially if something like violence or, um, you know, trust violations come into play. So I just want to throw that out there. And also, you know, when you're using a contract, I think it's important that the things that you put in it are achievable and measurable and very clear. Mm. You know, it's kind of like in therapy, you want to have clear, measurable goals, and they, they should be attainable. If you use these really high lofty expectations and they're really difficult to attain, it's going to feel like somebody's not holding up their end when really that person may be trying very hard and it's just not possible to hold up what you've put in the contract. So, you know, keep it measurable, keep it simple, keep it very explicit and clear. You know, you might want to focus on big concepts and not try to account for every single situation that might possibly arise in writing. You'll just drive yourself nuts. Instead, you know, touch on the big things, use it as a, a conversation starter, a negotiation helper, but, you know, don't rely on it to um, preserve your own personal safety or to to make a relationship continue to function. Because at the, the end of the day, trust and mutual respect um, are going to go so much farther than any kind of contract. That's very well stated. Thank you. <laughs> All right. So I think that's going to wrap up that topic for today. Thanks for talking about this with me. Thanks, as always, for listening to Naughty Talk. Our show is available on most popular podcast platforms. For updates, to submit a request to be a guest on the show, to write in with questions for our hosts or request lifestyle advice, head over to the show's page at sunnyleemain.com. You'll also find information about my novels, including my Turn the Key series, which are dark erotica with themes of hypnosis, BDSM, and sometimes a little bit of magic. All books feature different kinks and are queer inclusive. I hope you've enjoyed the show and you join us again next time.